Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Are you there? Come out from under your blanket. It'll be okay. Uh, Every angle and an update of COVID-19, what it is doing to Canada and how we are all coping. And we'll get through it. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. As far as Hamilton itself, uh, just like in other parts of the province and other parts of the country, uh, seniors home, senior residents being hit hard. Uh, how is our, our city faring with COVID-19? As I mentioned, uh, our senior residents here are no different than any other in parts of Ontario and uh, again, continue to house the most vulnerable. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, the director of our Emergency Operations Center, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, once again, Paul, for those that may not know, talk about what the Emergency Operations Center is and what your role is there. So we were activated when uh, when this pandemic became clear it was going to be a crisis for a period of time. We were activated to uh, assist the city in making real-time um, decisions to deal with the crises that were emerging. And why you have emergency operations centers is to allow decision-making to happen quickly uh, in order to, to, to do things with a fast-moving situation. And so normally, people have seen these kick into gear when we've had, for instance, ice storms in the past. Uh, when we, uh, you know, Plastimet was another example uh, from many years ago. So people are used to it, I think, in those circumstances. This one's going to be a much longer one, uh, and it's required us to do a number of phases of work. The early part of it was shutting down services and restricting uh, access to public spaces. Uh, and now I think, as, uh, as I heard uh, you before I uh, came on to, for the interview, um, we're now moving into the phase where we're going to see whether uh, that work we've done to isolate people, uh, to socially distance, to cut down on the amount of of public interaction uh, is going to help us through this next phase, which is when the virus is is going to start to surge in number of cases uh, in our community. Uh, as I ask you this question, I, I, I realize it's it's one that we probably ask at the beginning of every week, but we have heard, and I guess this is in relation to those that have been returning from abroad and such, that this week we could see quite a spike. W- what can you tell us about that? Well, certainly the, the hardest part of this pandemic has been modeling what it looks like. We know that the, the fact of the matter is we want to uh, lower that that spike as much as is possible and and spread it out over as long a period as time of time as possible in order to allow our our healthcare system not to get overloaded and other systems as I'm sure we'll talk about in terms of retirement homes and long-term care facilities so uh, you know as as we've recognized that at first this was a lot of travel based contact we now have seen in the last number of days for sure that many more of the cases of of covid-19 are related to what we call tra- community transmission and so that is where there's no discernible tracing it back to uh, somebody who had traveled uh, or a close contact of somebody who had traveled. And, um, and that means that it's, it's uh, you know, potentially in a lot of places, uh, some people say it's potentially everywhere. And I think that's the way to look at it. And, and that means that uh, this thing is going to start to take hold with more people becoming ill and uh, potentially more people entering into the healthcare system. 
So I think what, they, what the models show is that over the next uh, number of weeks, uh, we're going to continue to rise and get to that crest at some point. No one can predict exactly when that's going to happen. And then we're going to start to see the decline. But the other piece to recognize is when people get sick, they're sick for a long time with this, particularly those who are, 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 are incredibly sick. Um, this is a long recovery period. And I know for many, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, three, five, seven day kind of recovery. But for those that require hospitalization, they're in hospital for quite some time. And uh, that also places that pressure on for many, many more weeks. It's not a quick one or two days recovery and then out and back into the community uh, in certain circumstances. So that's what we're looking at. Um, the models are just that. They're predictions based on some inputs. But uh, everybody seems to agree when you look at North America and then you want to hone it down to Ontario and to Hamilton that the next few weeks are when we're going to see uh, a, a tremendous rise in, in cases. And we hope that the work that we've done to isolate people uh, will have a, a, a good impact in terms of keeping that to a manageable number. Uh, what can you tell us about an update on cases in Hamilton? Uh, so I don't have the numbers. Uh, that'll be uh, released by the Medical Officer of Health um, um, uh, later this afternoon. But we are continuing to see a rise in cases uh, in Hamilton. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had uh, we've had death as a result of COVID-19 in Hamilton now. So the seriousness of this uh, this virus and, and this disease is, is becoming more and more prevalent. And as many people have noticed over the weekend, um, now we're starting to see uh, further outbreaks in long-term care facilities and retirement residences. And those place a particular pressure on all of the care uh, folks in the community, those that provide direct care in those homes and the hospitals, because uh, those are some of our most vulnerable residents and their their outcomes are typically a uh, little more severe than, um, than the general population. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, and as, we, as we've certainly heard, this has been devastating for some senior residences and, and homes and such. Um, what are you doing? What can we do to try to reduce this uh, at this time? Because, again, the, these homes have been on lockdown for a while as well, have they not? They have been. And, you know, whether you're a retirement home or a long-term care facility, I mean, these facilities need to need to adhere to the pandemic planning and the outbreak planning that they they, they do and and they have things in place to to limit the spread of, of a number of things i mean flu is typically the thing these care facilities worry about on a year-by-year basis and and um some of the spread of covid 19 is is a similar type of thing it's a respiratory uh, virus but it is not the flu that is for sure so we need people to follow those those guidelines. We need the staff to make sure that they are following every one of their infection control uh, protocols that are in place because spreading it from, from resident to resident is our worst fear. Spreading it from residents to staff and staff to staff is our worst fear. And that's what we see in, in cases where this gets into homes is that it, there's often a cluster uh, of it. And the other piece is that we have to be very cognizant that Staffing becomes a challenge, too, when you have the outbreaks, both those that are sick, uh, but also those sometimes who choose not to come to work if there's an outbreak in their place of work. And that's the situation we had over the weekend where we had to rally some supports to make sure that uh, the retirement residence was was well supported through this so they could be stabilized and get back on their feet. And unfortunately, we also in that process had to transport a number of people to hospital um, because of their illness. Uh, what about shortage of supplies for the the workers in these uh, homes? I mean, is that adequate at this point, at this time? Have you run into difficulty there? 
So everybody's running into difficulty procuring it uh, in terms of supplies at the moment. Uh, in general, people are are okay, uh, and I say that in general because there'll be some people listening going, "Hey, my facility is not," but. Um, there are a number of facilities and places and hospitals, for instance, and our paramedics at the city of Hamilton where there is a supply. The challenge is that supply doesn't have a long, we're not talking about a supply that's 45 days out or 60 days out. Um, it's a, you know, and, and as we see more cases and the need to use more of the personal protective equipment, uh, that's when you start to see, as we call it, the burn rate or the usage rate go up, and therefore we start to burn through it a little faster. So we're very concerned. Uh, I, I listen daily uh, to the Premier and to the Prime Minister talking about what they're doing to get them in. Uh, I would say that that um, all of that is wonderful, and I applaud that work. We need to actually see the boxes arrive on the on the loading dock, uh, though, before we'll we'll start to breathe a little easier. This is the biggest uh, you know challenge we have, particularly in those areas where people are working daily with uh, high risk um, uh, individuals or individuals who are sick. Is we have to protect our our healthcare workers, whether those are paramedics, long term care uh, staff, uh, those who work in the hospital. And those, those resources are dwindling. So are we out yet? No. Uh, are we confident that uh, our provincial and federal government will do their job? Yes. Uh, but we need to see those results and we need to see them quickly. And we're at the point. I mean, the city of Hamilton does right now have a donation call out. We're asking for supplies. So obviously, if we had lots and lots of supplies, we wouldn't be doing that. But um, we need to make sure that we're there to protect our workers and also support community organizations like we had to do over the weekend, where we sent some supplies of PPE into the retirement residence because they simply had run out. So we need to be able to respond to emergencies uh, and we need to have our own on hand. And and right now, uh, we don't have a strong enough supply that's going to last us through the next couple of months. Uh, We've heard reports of some families actually removing uh the residents from uh the nursing home or from the senior care homes whatever they may be is that a good idea how do you answer or address that really i I do think people need to look at all the information that's in front of them and make individual choices there isn't an advice that i can say that says this is what you should do but i think every family has to make the decisions that make sense for them i think what we do need to you know recognize is that the same level of care and the same level of daily activity um, may not occur in certain cases, but families also have to look at, can they really support family members to come home? And so it's different. Yeah. For some, it may be relatively straightforward because their, uh, their, their older adult is, is relatively um, stable. But you know, when you look at people who are in long-term care, some of them require such amount of daily care. Could you really see that person going home and being cared for well for not a day or two but what could be uh, uh, several months. And so those are individual decisions, but I, I can tell you that I would, I would encourage families to look at all the information, be in contact with where their loved one is, and, and make decisions based on what they think is the be- in the best interest of their loved one. Because uh, in certain cases, people are concerned, well, hey, it's not the same quality of this, or it's not the same amount of this happening. And the reality is that's because staffing is low, resources are low, and uh, you know people may just get informed, I guess would be my encouragement, and then make the best decision for your family. 
And and most have said that once that person is taken out, they cannot be brought back in until after this is all over, which is something to consider uh, to be concerned of as well. What about how we are coping? I remember last weekend, uh, the leaders were were pretty upset that people were still out milling about. Do you, do you, have we got the message yet, uh, Paul? Do you think? Well, I think the message is out, and and I've been one that's been a little bit harsh. Um, and I I need to also recognize that many 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 people are following the the guidelines. But I think where it's not being followed, we just need to continue to harp on the message that that group gatherings of of any size, even within your own family of, you know, hey, well, what's the harm in us having a little family, you know, dinner and inviting over some of our close family members? Well, there is harm in that potentially, and you don't want to do it. So it is about, you know, when the kids say, hey, can I go and play with all my friends? The answer is no. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of activity in the front yard with one other person, if you can socially distance, maybe. But I think we have to take this very, very seriously. And the good news is I drove around a little bit, uh, particularly yesterday, um, uh, just to get a sense from my own liking of what's happening. Uh, volumes were down in some of the hot spots that we've seen, so I think people are getting it. The number of calls coming into the city are increasing a little bit of people saying, hey, can you check into this establishment or that establishment? I really think there's some some challenges in the volume of people. And I had to go out and do a bit of grocery shopping on the weekend and I actually had to stand in line because where I went to shop, they were uh, making sure they were metering the number of people coming into the grocery store. Mm. So I think that businesses are taking this very seriously. It's great to see uh, people are taking it seriously, but I can't stress it enough. I still hear the stories of people saying, I don't care. I'm going to continue to do it. And the answer that, that I would give to those, those folks is, uh, you know, read just a little bit about this virus and understand the importance of all of us being in this together and then you know give your head a shake and decide whether you're really going to thumb your nose at the advice of our health professionals well said paul johnson's been with us director of our emergency operations center for the city of hamilton paul thank you so much for the time i know you're busy and again uh, pass on to all that you come in contact with we are grateful uh, for all the hard work that you're doing thank you paul thank you you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly uh, got the worldwide message from other countries and how they're dealing with this, how they're recovering from it, how they're handling it. Uh, some are doing better than others. Uh, there's many European nations that are locking down due to uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, in the EU. Uh, it seems that Sweden has remained relatively open. And uh, whenever looking for something good in life, it seems we always look to Scandinavian countries. It, it appears they're doing everything better than we are. Uh, are they in this case, and will this impact other EU nations? To talk more about all of this, Kurt Hubner is with us, uh, Institute for European Studies, University of British Columbia, and he is with us now. Kurt, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Yeah, so far I'm fine. Uh, your thoughts on how the EU is handling this? It, it obviously is affecting other countries within the EU, uh, EU uh, uh, a lot more uh, uh, harshly than others. Your thoughts on who's doing this right, who isn't? Yeah, I mean, the, the European Union, as we know, is a collection of nation states, even though there's a supranational structure on all this. But uh, the pandemic uh, made it pretty clear uh, the nations, the countries differ enormously in the way they were dealing with the pandemic, in the way they were affected, uh, the responses early, late, 
uh, also uh, the uh, the age structure of those uh, countries differs enormously. Think about Italy, uh, a country with a uh, overaged population, as we learned. In a harsh way, uh, this virus, obviously, uh, even though we're all affected, as you mentioned, uh, is particularly uh, terrible for old age people. So uh, that's one of the reasons, not the only one, but one reason that Italy, for example, is uh, hurt very much. Uh, that responses differ enormously. Think about uh, for quite a while there was this debate uh, what is happening, for example, in Scandinavia, where we see Finland, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden acting let us say, differently, uh, responding differently to the crisis. And uh, whether the one response is better than the other, uh, we only will know at the very end when we see the death rates, when we see the, 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 the ways those countries are affected. At this moment, I think so, most of the countries uh, in different speeds uh, turn towards a lockdown of their economies and societies. And obviously, this is the way uh, to go. Uh, at least when you look worldwide, also experiences in Asia and so on, the lockdown. But the lockdown comes with a lot of economic implications, social implications. Uh, and it's a, a very difficult path, but a path uh, the Europeans, on average, at least have chosen. Uh, Sweden electing not to lock down everybody. Is this playing with fire? How come they don't have the cases that other centers do? Yeah, I think that the situation in Sweden uh, is changing very quickly. Uh, the death per million is 36 compared to, let's say, Denmark, the next neighbor, uh, with 28 or something like this, and Norway with nine. Norway and Denmark, very early on, they're very harsh lockdowns. I mean, those are smaller societies. It's probably easier to do, but Sweden is also a very small society. They decided to, to go a different uh, path. And it turns out now that at least the death rates are uh, higher in Sweden than in those two other countries. Uh, and uh, the, the, the government in Sweden just over the weekend uh, seems to uh, change its uh, sentiment and its policies. So there's also, at the moment, uh, the restaurants were open, you could go out, uh, schools were open. So the idea was... Uh, being responsible, practicing social distancing is based on trust. And that's that's true. You know, we have to trust each other much, much more. Also here in Canada, you know, uh, it needs all of us and we have to uh, play according to rules. Now, Sweden, like those Canadian countries, are famous as a high trust societies. And the Swedish government tried to capitalize on that. But now it turns out in this kind of situation, trust is not sufficient. You have to make decisions and you have to turn down. And, and lock down uh, all, all kind of public and private institutions. And I think so that is now happening in Sweden. It comes much delayed, and maybe the price will be higher than uh, in other Scandinavian countries. We'll have to see. But uh, the experiment, so to say, only trusting on the kind of social responsibility of the citizens so far seems to be, let us say, uh, questionable, or at least a very kind of... Uh, adventurous to some degree and uh, things is, are changing in Sweden now too when there's a kind of convergence across Europe that the lockdown uh, is something you can't avoid. Uh, how come Sweden's straying from say what Norway and Finland and Denmark would be doing? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it has very much uh, to do with the 
idea that uh, if you have citizens who are highly educated, who have a kind of uh, sentiment that it's a society and to the, the fate of the society depends on the action of each individual. And Sweden is, in this regard, a very kind of high-trust society. And I think so. this was the kind of strategy that rather than uh, restricting civil liberties, rather than shutting down public life, uh, you can rely on the responsibility of each citizen. Uh, but again, this is uh, a, a pretty... Uh, difficult strategy and it seems that it's not really working out in this way. There are situations and that's a balancing act across the world, at least the Western world, how to balance democratic rights, openness, civil liberties with the kind of implications and the policies from a health perspective you need to take in order to uh, slim down uh, the pandemic. Who in the European Union is doing this right? I don't think so. there's really a country that is doing it right. I mean, we, we know, right. for example, there's a lot of uh, discussion out there. What is happening in Germany? You have a, a pretty high rate of infections, but a relatively low rate of death. So uh, what? How, how could they do this? This is a misreporting. Are they not really uh, uh, very open with the figures? Uh, so the German case is one, I think, so well, very early on, uh, a lot of testing is happening. German is testing much, much more than uh, most of the countries in the Western world. And this helped them to isolate cases, to identify clusters, and then to deal with those clusters so that the spread is being restricted. I think so testing is what it's all about. You need to have a, a working uh, public health system. It must be well-funded. Think about the situation, for example, in the UK, where not only the government, Boris uh, uh, Johnson, played it down, put it like in the US for quite a long time, but also then uh, is uh, equipped with a national health system that is in many regards, you know, the past it was the model for the Western world, but it has been totally underfunded due to austerity in the last uh, seven, eight years. Uh, and so it, all those kind of institutions must be uh, in place. And uh, some of those health systems obviously are totally overburdened. You know, and the, the idea that you can run like this herd immunity system, also something is happening in Netherlands to some degree, even though they don't use the word. But uh, if you let uh, a significant number of people get sick, get infected, they must, must be treated. And then you, so the simple question is, do you have enough beds, do you have enough personnel to deal with it? And it turns out not a single country is prepared for this kind of thing. So therefore, you have all those kind of differences. Again, another country, not uh, the European Union, but Europe, Switzerland, enormous high level of uh, infection rates also due to open borders for quite a long time with Italy until they close down um, and so on. So the differences are enormous. I think so each country tries to make adjustments, but the general idea across Europe is from a health, public, public health perspective, that there is not a way to lock down. We see the closing of borders, uh, you know, the, the Schengen Agreement, free movement of people, goods, services, all those kind of things has been enormously restricted. There are still goods are moving around, but even there, and it's getting more difficult. And uh, so the price for all this is very, very high.
You talked about uh, testing, Kurt, and, and, and many have said that that is the key, is to finding out exactly who is testing positive and who is not, and then uh, quarantine those that are testing positive. Uh, but it, it appears that most parts of the world don't, or certainly in North America, uh, don't even have enough tests. How, how is it that places like Germany are able to test so many? We've even, I think, seen the same thing in South Korea. Uh, how do they have more tests than other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of uh, public sector and private sector initiatives very early on. Uh, in, in late February already, some of those even smaller companies were aware that something big is emerging. And so they came up with, uh, first of all, with the generating the right kind of test kits, you know, those kind of test kits have not been available because it's a new virus. So they came up with those test kits. They are pretty reliable in the meantime, at least the ones uh, produced uh, in this part of the world. And they, they started to do mass production. Uh, and uh, they're actually also exporting a lot of those test kits around the world, not only uh, to Germany, the, but the, the production line was in place early on, put it this way. So to some degree, uh, there was more, let's say, public uh, attention to all that. Uh, politics was much more observant and to, than in some other parts of the world. And this also makes to do, you know, you need a lot of, uh, you, you need the right kind of political class, not only parties, not the governments, the right kind of debate, openness, uh, particularly compare this to a situation like uh, in the U.S., for example, where for quite a long time, over weeks, it was played down. So how would you, if your president tells you everything is easy, we can handle it, it's not a problem, why should anybody really get prepared? So the mm. situation in some parts of Europe was in this regard different, and it speaks again for uh, the, 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 the importance of uh, open uh, societies uh, that you can do those kind of things and can, can start discussions and can, you know, and pol- the politicians are mm. getting pressed to move forward in time. Kurt Hubner has been with us, Institute for European Studies, University of British Columbia. Kurt, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. All right, let's bring in Dr. Andrew Glencross, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham. Uh, Thank you for taking the time, Andrew. Much appreciated. Nice to speak with you today, Scott. How significant is it that Boris Johnson has been admitted to the hospital now with COVID-19? How is he doing? This is a huge story, and there's a bit of a contradictory message emerging whereby he's well enough to still run the country, but he's poorly enough to require hospitalization, which is going to continue. So apparently he's comfortable and still working, but beyond that, we don't really know what's going on. And that leaves quite a void of explanation that um, will eventually have to be filled one way or the other. Uh, Do we know about his immediate health? Uh, Will he have to be hospitalized for long? We understand that he was doing reasonably well. That's what they're saying, but there's no timeline given to how long he would have to stay. The details of the kind of treatment and tests that he is undergoing is not clear either. And in the briefing just given by his essentially his deputy, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, they haven't spoken since Saturday. So it's also a bit of a mystery in terms of the communication amongst the high-ranking members of this government about what's going on exactly. 
And how have those in the UK responded to all of this? Uh, do they feel that the Prime Minister has been doing a good job on this file? Well, there's certainly an overwhelming amount of goodwill in terms of wishing him a, a speedy and full recovery. But I think there's just a lot of uncertainty about what this actually means, about who's in charge and how coordinated and coherent government action is if he's steering it really from his hospital bed and in a time where there's a lot of recriminations about whether the UK wasn't quick enough off the mark for um, implementing a lockdown and implementing a testing regime that could really um, get on top of this epidemic then unfortunately that still leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Uh, should Should those in the UK be concerned about who's next in line or who is running the country? Is that actually an issue at this point? Well, constitutionally, it's um, a grey area, but it has been decided when he was already tested positive that it would be then the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who would pick up the reins if necessary. But the message overwhelmingly has been that that's actually not necessary um, at the moment and that everything looks still fine for Boris Johnson himself, who is still... um, doing all his responsibilities as prime minister. But I think a lot of people are still unclear about what that actually means in practice on a hourly basis, because, of course, this is pandemic, um, has new information coming to light all the time. Uh, We also heard the Queen from the Queen over the course of the weekend offering uh, some words of hope and such. And, And that only I understand the fifth time that she has done that. Uh, during her reign, other than for you know the typical regular outings that she does do, how significant is how significant is it to hear from the Queen at this time? It was hugely symbolic and hugely important when it comes to a mess providing a message of reassurance, a message of unity at a time of national crisis, and of course that would have been steered by the government itself which was decided that the time was right to get that message across. But I'm certain that the Queen herself would have wanted to be there in this hour of need for for the people of her country. And I think the uh, message has gone down exceedingly well, just as the government intended. Uh, we're certainly hearing and seeing uh, the parts of the world that are still waiting for a peak, still waiting for this thing to uh, to level out. Where is the UK with COVID-19? How are you coping? Well, it is a waiting game, and it's a really terrifying waiting game at times, especially if you're um, on lockdown and um, isolated socially and also mentally. But the peak is estimated to come in the UK by mid-April, and we're hoping to have some good news um, to that effect in the coming days, whereby we can start seeing that the worst is over. But, of course, that still doesn't answer the question of how to deal with the secondary phases about then reducing the conditions of the lockdown and being able to stay on top of that whilst in winter we know that there will also be another wave of flu patients coming into hospital. Dr. Andrew Glencross has been with the senior lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham. Andrew, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and you take care. Yes, yeah, stay safe, Scott. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We we're certainly hearing lots in regard to masks. Uh, the the prime minister asked about that this morning and not really answering the questions that were directed to him. Uh, Premier Ford a little bit more direct in saying what happened uh, in regard to masks that were supposed to come in into Ontario weekend and then something went awash and uh, went awry and and they didn't end up crossing the border. That being said, uh, the Premier did say earlier on that uh, he does have a little bit of optimism after talking to other U.S. officials that uh, Canada will get an exemption here. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Lee Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, My pleasure, Scott. And your thoughts on what we're hearing in regard to 3M. Uh, this started with uh, the uh, president uh, uh, invoking the Defense Production Act, meaning everything stays there. And yeah. now we're hearing over the weekend that we're potentially 3 million masks, I guess, didn't get across the border. What are your thoughts on all of this? Um, I hope when this is all over um, and the emotions are have gone, you know, uh, gone away or gone down and we can speak more, uh, much more dispassionately. And I hope we learn lessons from this. Um, first off, of course, um, I don't think that uh, Trump should have done that. I think it was uh, ridiculous. Um, but that's not where I'm going with this. Uh, and I realize that what I'm about to say will probably annoy quite a few of your listeners. Um, I think there are some big lessons, and that is that our relationship with the United States, no matter who is in the White House, no matter how obnoxious or disgusting the person is in the White House, it is absolutely essential that uh, Canadian prime ministers and premiers have a very, very close and strong relationship uh, with the person in the White House. Uh, we've had, we've seen for the last two or three or four years a lot of, uh, I would call it, ad hocery. Uh, you know, the the um, because we have a very unpredictable person, and they have an unpredictable person in the White House who will say something, and then we spend uh, two or three weeks trying to undo what he did. That is. Uh, contrary to uh, the way we've done business for a very long time. And that's good. We call up some allies, and some people make frantic calls behind the scenes, but it's all smacks, to me, of ad hocery. And it seems that we need a more enduring and a more stable uh, relationship, and I don't buy the argument that that's not possible. You know, when I hear people saying, oh, well, there's that idiot in the White House. It's like the quarterback who never makes it to the playoffs and says, well, it's not my fault. The other team keeps tackling me before I can throw the ball. (laughs) Yes, your job as the quarterback is to deal with those nasty guys out there that want to tackle you all the time, and you want to get past them before they tackle you. It's called leadership. And I think we have made mistakes, too. Yes, we're dealing with an unpredictable person. Yes, he does disgusting things and says disgusting things. But I don't think that when we have responded in public and and attacked him in response, I don't believe that that is producing. I don't believe it's strategic. I don't believe it's producing what is in our national interest. I'm very Kissingerian. You, 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 you talked about lessons. What lessons should we learn here? that we need to develop a much deeper relationship with the states so that these events don't bubble up in the first place. I'm thinking to the relationship uh, between Reagan and Mulroney in recent times. I'm thinking in the 30s uh, between Mackenzie King, the liberal prime minister, and the Democratic president, Roosevelt, had uh, very, very close relationships. And this sort of thing did not happen. 
and uh, having rocky relationships where, I mean, the moment I see any leader. Why do we have rocky relationships with the U.S.? Why would you say that? I, I think it's because we're much, we're in an age where we're much more willing to emote and say that something upsets us publicly to a microphone, to a media. And I don't think you should be conducting uh, diplomacy through the microphone or through the media. I think it all. Uh, yeah, but is that with the United it. States, though? Is that with right. the United States, though? Because we don't seem to be that way with China. It seems we're, you know, we're kissing one bottom and slapping the other, and perhaps the well, wrong I'm, one. I'm not saying <laughs> that's a very good point, Scott. I'm not suggesting that our relationship is any better with China. I, I I'm maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I'm, you know, saying, oh, the good old days although I'm not that old, but um, there was, I mean, I don't think anyone would deny that we had an excellent relationship, Canadian-American relationship, when Reagan was in the White House and Mulroney was in the um, 24 Sussex. Um, You know, going back, and I've read a lot about that period leading up to the Second World War and the extraordinary cooperation that existed between Canada and the United States. When C.D. Howe, the famous business liberal prime minister, became the minister of everything, and was negotiating with the Americans left, right, and center to build up the uh, productive uh, capacity of Canada to build tanks and ships and planes and guns and the whole nine yards. And and I just don't believe that we've got that same relationship today. And and I think it's partly because we're much more willing to when the the person on the other side is of another party or ideology. We're much more willing to send messages out to the public how much we don't agree with that person's ideology when that that's not I'm, I'm by the way for those who think this is really crazy i'm really channeling my inner henry kissinger who made this argument all mm-hmm. the time he says don't criticize mm-hmm. other governments in public plain and simple full stop stop right there and he won a nobel prize where is 3m on all of this they seem to be caught in the middle what is there they are <laughs> I, I i'm very skeptical of ceos that go public uh, because they start to freelance as politicians, and they're not politicians. I'm not saying that they should just lie down and just take it. That's not my point. They should be conducting all of this behind closed doors, uh, as we should, as our premiers should. Um, so I'm, but this isn't ideological. I'm criticizing Premier Ford, uh, who's a conservative. Um, we shouldn't be criticizing uh, the leaders that we want and need to cooperate with us. We shouldn't be condemning them publicly. It may play well with our base, and it may be, make for great politics, but it makes for terrible diplomacy, and it does not achieve the end we wanted. That's why I was so cr- critical of Christy, Christy Freeland when she went down three years ago and was blocked from the White House, accepted an award as the Foreign um, Diplomatic Minister of the Year Award, and she did a 30-minute diatribe about why Donald Trump was such an idiot. And uh, and and he may be, but, and and academics can say that, and people in interest groups can say that, and union leaders can say that, but not the people running the country, because you have to deal with the idiot the day after you've called him an idiot publicly, mm-hmm. and and that doesn't help you. My late grandmother used to say, you catch a lot more flies with sugar than you do with vinegar, and and I think we're losing sight of that. This is just basic diplomacy 101, and and Kissinger did write and talk about this, by the way. And he attributed his success, uh, and he was extremely successful as a diplomat, to uh, keeping his criticism behind closed doors. And I, I don't think that that's the way to go, whether you're a liberal or a conservative. I don't think that that's the way is, to go. Is the federal as critical of China as it seems to be of the United States? 
No, but to be to show that I am being really balanced on this, I understand what Prime Minister Trudeau is trying to do. I mean, I think we need we Canada. I'm not. This isn't the royal we. This is all of us need. There's two countries in the world that we really do need a very strong partnership with, even if we don't agree with them. And one is the U.S. and the other is China, because the two of them are the two largest economies in the world. It does not mean, you know, I get people throwing this at me all, it's sort of a cheap shot. Well, you mean, you know, you should just roll over and let them do whatever they want. No, not at all. We can maintain our own values and our own policies, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop talking to China or stop talking to the U.S. Of course not. And uh, and so I think we uh, what the, the liberal government is trying to do, and and I don't think they really haven't figured it out yet because nobody really knows yet. How, what is the nature of that relationship going to be um, as it uh, develops? And uh, I mean, China is in a lot of flux itself uh, because of the problems they are going through on their side that we don't see so much because it's an authoritarian state, so it isn't as widely reported. So I I really I'm not critical of Mr. Trudeau for reaching out and trying to, to uh, develop a new policy towards China. Um, and he's not critical of the leadership. I agree with you, and I don't think he should be uh, in public. You can criticize behind closed doors, but I don't think it's their job to go out and give speeches saying, you know, that other guy I'm trying to deal with is, you know, he really is a bit of a jerk, you know, and I really don't like him very much. <laughs> That's not the way you're going to make good, uh, <laughs> a good re- uh, relationship. And, uh, and again, this is straight out of Henry Kissinger 101. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, The premier revealed in an interview with Global News over the weekend that uh, they were expecting uh, 3 million masks to come across the border and that they were stopped uh, from entering Canada. And a lot of this uh, in uh, to do with the Defense Production Act, uh, Defense Production Act against so uh, anything manufactured there stays there. To talk more about all of this, Hope is with this Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter Stephen Harper. And he is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine, Scott. Hope you are too. Yeah, all good here at uh, Studio Thompson. We've certainly hearing all of the uh, claims in regard to masks. Before it was shortages. Now it's people hoarding them or stopping them from going across the border. Uh, yeah. Of course, the president invoking the Defense Production Act and calling out 3M for shipping them to Latin America and Canada. Uh, what do you know about these being stopped at the border? Uh, the premier was quite forthright about it, but the prime minister didn't offer too much about it. Yeah, there's been a bit of a confusion as well about the numbers, and maybe you've discussed that already, where uh, Premier Ford in an interview said that there were 3 million masks stuck at the border, and then we found out that half a million or 500,000 had been released and were going in. Now I've seen a number floating around that it was actually 4 million masks that were actually ordered. I don't know what it is from that point of view. We'll just have to assume that the numbers have to be sorted out as best they can in, in due course. But in terms of what's going on, um, I think we saw it a few days ago when Ontario Premier Doug Ford was extremely frustrated with U.S. President Donald Trump and basically insinuated that he was very disappointed with him and that when the chips are down, you know, you know who your friends are. And I'm just paraphrasing a little bit, but that's exactly how he felt. Um, He was irritated that this had happened, especially because Canada has always been very good and one of the world's leaders in helping other countries during a time of crisis, including during 9-11, way back in September of 2001, people may remember that Canada obviously helped out the United States after the World Trade Center was bombed. So, 
it's it's very unfortunate it's come to this point. I understand, obviously, that the U.S. president, like any world leader, wants to ensure that is, you know, that the amount of medical supplies that are available are widely available domestically and whatever else can be brought out internationally. But at the same time, if we're supposed to be, you know, allies, partners, friends, which the United States and Canada have been, you know, for more than 100 years, we should be able to do things like this and not have a U.S. president cause these sorts of restrictions the same way that on Canada. We should not be restricting the U.S. from receiving certain things. This is the only way that we, we can work together properly as any sort of a global community. Considering where we are, and I'm getting email on this, why are we sending, why did we send uh, 16 tons of this stuff to China? Should we have done that way back when? If, no. You know, I mean, no, we shouldn't have at all. And in fact, the mistake there is it's more so, you know, the Canada U.S. relationship is very, very different from polit- a political and economic standpoint. And while certainly we deal, Canada deals with China on an economic basis, and obviously our political leaders deal with one another too. The problem is that Canada and China, their relations have been frosty for over a year based on the two Michaels who are still in jail, Huawei Technologies, which you and I have talked about many times in the show and I've spoken about with others, is still a major issue. Canada and China just don't see eye to eye on things. And yes, I think that Canada, like all Western democracies, will help out any country in need, and that includes China. But based on the fact that we did that, you know, in lieu of what's been happening recently, and now sort of the the break between Canada-U.S. relations based via the 3M masks, uh, no, it was a huge mistake. Uh, Doug Ford said he was feeling uh, a bit of optimism after talking to other U.S. officials uh, yeah. in regard to this. Uh, is this just some grandstanding by Trump? Do you think this material will get through? I mean, we've certainly heard the stories of how many people live in Windsor and work in the Detroit medical system. We're certainly yeah. hearing that the, the materials that these masks are made from by the by 3M are actually from Canada. Yeah. So uh, where does this go? Good question. Um, yes, I, I did hear that Premier Ford was a bit more pleased, or at least his concerns were dispelled to some degree when he spoke with other U.S. authorities. And I think that's the reason that half a million masks are now making their way to Canada. So that's good. However, if the number, as we discussed about earlier, is much higher than that, and one would assume it is because obviously our medical community needs supplies on a regular basis, and half a million in terms of the masks, would certainly be helpful, but we obviously need a lot more if the coronavirus pandemic stays with us for an extended period of time, which I think is now pretty clear. Um, One has to hope that somehow or other that this issue gets resolved pretty quickly. Uh, I, I think, interestingly, it does show what I and others have been saying for a number of years, that while the comparison to Doug, of Doug Ford to Donald Trump was very common, certainly along left-wing commentators for many years, it's quite clear it yeah. never really existed, and it's never been it's never been proper to begin with. Like, it's never been accurate based on quotes that Doug Ford has said over the years and based on their actions, not even just Ford during the coronavirus pandemic, but in general. So if it is grandstanding by the U.S. president, and it may be in part, although partially he obviously wants to keep and, and hold on to as many medical supplies as he possibly can, I hope that whatever it is, be it partial grandstanding or partial reality, I hope that it actually stops because Canada and the U.S. have to continue on and we have to continue to work together. And if this level of trust that has existed for the most part 
most of the history between our two countries, with the exceptions of periods like the War of 1812, some of the anti-American sloganeering that we may remember under former Liberal Prime Minister Jean Chrétien around here, we know that there have been little issues of iciness that have existed, but generally speaking, Canada and the U.S. have been on the same side and have worked together in many different capacities. We have to hope that whatever this is coming from Donald Trump, that it stops, and maybe these amount of 3M masks coming forward is a sign that it was just a temporary measure or a temporary you know, measure of grandstanding to some extent. Has the whole issue of the 16 tons of goods being sent to change now? When this came up a few weeks ago, it, yeah. a few questions how, you know, it was a bit the, the, the pendulum of political co- correctness would take your head off. How <laughs> dare you even suggest that Canadians don't share with others, even though they're our adversary right. and, and not necessarily our neighbor like the United States? Is this argument different now? Because, again, we help the world, but I guess the big question is who, who's helping Canada here? Right. Well, I guess the question is, was the argument ever different to begin with? If Canada and China just don't see eye to eye on issues, it doesn't mean that Canada should basically take a big black marker and just cross out China or red marker, if you wish. We're not in school right now, so it's kind of hard to decide which one to use on your desk. No, but let you let me ask you this, Michael. Should should we have asked for the two Michaels back before we sent the sixteen tons of supplies? Is that not a, a reasonable ask here? Considering what China has put the rest of the world through? It's not unreasonable. I agree with you, Scott. I just think that a lot of bargaining on that level has been put by the wayside just because of the, the concern over the pandemic that we're dealing in. I mean, there are, but interestingly, as we know, we don't have to go through the laundry list of them, there are certain countries that are working or dealing with one another who have very little to do with each other, either in political and economic terms. You know, you can think a few weeks ago, for example, when Cuba sent a whole group of doctors down to Italy to help them when the uh, COVID symptoms were going sky high in Italy, which thankfully they're not as much right now, although there's still an issue there in that country, especially in the northern region. Um, That was kind of interesting in itself, not because Italy and Cuba don't deal with one another, but their relations are obviously very minor. But in this case, it was one country helping out another country in a time of need. So the fact that Canada decided to shift those 16 tons over to China at that point, even though all these issues, including the two Michaels, are going on, it certainly makes sense because as a global, you know, the global country, well, a global community in general, we should be working together on some level. But on the other hand, you know, if China is not willing to reciprocate, and I think this is something I mentioned with you as well, if they're not, then the question is, why should Canada continue to engage? Why should Mm. any country continue to engage? The Chinese have not been honest with us from the very beginning when it comes to, or at least based on U.S. intelligence reports and various other things we're seeing, it looks like, you know, there's a lot of questions behind China's number of confirmed cases of coronavirus and total number of deaths. But even putting that aside, China hasn't really worked properly with a lot of other countries for the most part, with the exception here and there, I mean, they gave support. I'm going to have to cut you off there, Michael. We're plumb out of time. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Thank you, Michael. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.